Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should like to draw our attention to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1 this morning. If you would turn there with me. For our Advent series, we've been going through various birth accounts in God's Word. As we lead up to the birth account, the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we're doing this because I believe that these birth accounts are here for a reason in God's Word. I believe that these birth accounts are pointing us forward, pointing us to that birth account of Jesus Christ. And so, I believe if we want to understand what happened on that night when Christ was born, that these birth accounts will help us understand that. They will help, uh, help continue to fill out that, that picture of what it means for Jesus Christ to have left His heavenly home to take on human flesh, become a servant, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Would you stand with me this morning as we read God's Word together? 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 20. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. And the name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. There were two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, 
he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, that I will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Faithful Father, may your word be like food to us that we eat and are satisfied. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you need relief? Here we are in the middle of the Christmas season. Things have been ramping up for the past couple weeks, and perhaps as you look to the next two weeks ahead, they are getting fuller and fuller by the day. Perhaps in the middle of it, you feel like you need some relief from all of the craziness, all of the busyness. How about your life, generally speaking? How often are you thinking about finding relief? We are told there are many different kinds of relief that we need in our life. We need financial relief. We need emotional relief. We need pain relief. We need stress relief. We need disaster relief. And perhaps there are many other kinds of relief, but all those point to one common fact. 
at times, our life can feel like we've been put in a pressure cooker. And the pressure grows and grows and grows to the point where we need to find some kind of release. We need the pressure to be eased or removed. We need relief. This is the world that we live in, my friends. This this is the common experience of all mankind. If you've spent any time in this world, then you know it. But perhaps the problem is that sometimes we want to find some relief, but it never finally goes away. It always comes back again. Whatever the problem was, it always comes back. We never find complete relief. We long to find relief from our sin-laden, cursed world, but only continue to encounter our own weakness and our own propensity to further distress and vexation. In the Bible, that longing to find complete relief is often expressed in a simple question, two words. Here's the question, how long? Listen to some verses that express this kind of longing. Psalm 6, 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 13, 1 through 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 35, 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Psalm 74, 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Psalm 79, 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Psalm 89, 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Psalm 90, 12 and 13. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long have pity on your servants? O Lord, how long shall the wicked How long shall the wicked exult? Psalm 94, 3. Have you ever asked the Lord that question? Have you ever asked the Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, am I to endure this world? How long, O Lord, am I to be distressed? How long, O Lord, will my soul be vexed? How long, O Lord, will this anxiety paralyze me? How long, O Lord, will my tears wet my pillow and grief fill my heart as I'm confronted with the brokenness, the sin, the destruction, the death that continually surrounds me in this world? Have you desperately pleaded this question before the throne of God. How long? 
there may be some sitting here today who feel pretty good. Well, <laughs> I've never needed to do that, Pastor. I've, I've never needed to ask that question. I've never had to resort to such desperate measures. Life has been all right. You might be tempted to think that that position of never having to ask that question is a position of advantage. It's a position of spirituality, a a position of maturity, a position of health. But the Bible would tell us we are dead wrong if we think that. It may be a symptom that your life has been distracted by worldly things. You've numbed yourself to that question of how long, O Lord. And I would say if you've never known that question, if you've never cried out that desperate question to the Lord, and it's even more dire because I would say if you've never asked that question that you don't know the love of God. It's the people in that position that God shows His love to. If you've said that question, how long, O oh Lord, then I believe you are right where God wants you to be. And this morning as we come to the, the text of 1 Samuel 1, as we come to Hannah As we look at her life, I don't think the message is we should be like Hannah. I think we already are like Hannah. I think we're like her in what's described in most of these verses this morning of being troubled, being distressed with great anxiety, with great vexation. Hannah's situation Her condition is bleak. It's dark. It's helpless. It's hopeless. It's disturbing. There could not be a much more dreary and desolate picture painted of Hannah and her life than what we find in 1 Samuel. What good could possibly come from this woman? What would ever change and bring this woman up out of the pit of misery that she was in? How could it ever be that there would be any dawn, any chance of life after, after any chance of light after so great darkness and despair? How long, O oh Lord, it appears it would never end, that there would be no relief, no release, no remedy to such a dismal existence. It's this question which brings so many tears, so much sorrow and sadness. It wells hearts up with grief. It appears that the tears would ever flow, but what happens? God provides. God cares. God intervenes in a miraculous and supernatural way in order to bring her out of her distress and give her relief to provide hope and to wipe away her tears, to turn her sorrow into joy, to turn her barrenness into life, to turn her darkness into the dawn. I believe the actions we see the Lord take in 
these verses are still applicable to us today as we live in the same world as Hannah. But now we see this bigger picture of how God will finally and fully bring complete relief, final release, remove all pressure, and reinstate life as we were meant to know it, and give us the hope of a future where there are no more tears. But how does God do this? Follow along in your bulletin if you would like, the insert in your bulletin, but number one this morning, God provides peace to those painfully provoked. God provides peace to those painfully provoked. I knew how to do it when I was growing up. I knew how to do it. I knew how to push my brother's buttons. I knew the actions I could perform that would wind him up. I knew the words to say that would make him angry. I knew the looks that I could give him. I didn't have to even say anything. I could just look at him and get him going. I don't say that with pride, but with shame. I knew how to almost instantaneously provoke my little brother. Maybe you have experienced that in relationships with your own siblings. Maybe you've experienced similar things in other relationships. Whether you are the one doing the provoking or whether you are the one being provoked. Provoking, though, is not merely contained to the relationships between little children. Children aren't very good at hiding their provocations. But adults do it just the same. Adults provoke one another. In fact, Paul in Galatians has to warn the church about this very thing. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 5, 26. We hear from that verse that what surrounds this idea of provoking one another is pride. Pride is what you have and what someone else does not have. Pride even in the wishing and envying that, of what someone else has. Provoking has this idea behind it that I am better than you and I'm going to irritate you and get under your skin and never let you forget it. Parents are also warned not to provoke their children. Directly, Paul speaks to fathers in Ephesians and Colossians and he says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How is that done? There's a standard that I've set, standard that I've set for my children, but there's no way that you will ever get there. There was no way that you'll ever attain to that standard. In my pride, I have set up an insurmountable expectation for my kids that they could never reach no matter how hard they try. I'm provoking them to anger. How irritatingly frustrating it is for someone to say, hey, here's where you should be, but there's no way for you to ever get there. There's no way you'll ever be as good as me. There's no way you'll ever attain what you should attain. You will always be second best. You will always be less. You will always be lacking. Hannah experiences being provoked in our text this morning. 
We begin, though, not with Hannah, but with her husband, Elkanah. Elkanah, who lived in Ephraim. And from 1 Chronicles 6, we know that he is of the tribe of Levi. He's a Levite. We are told almost immediately that he has two wives. And I think there is a hint here that we should not see this as a good thing. We have to remember that just because because someone did something in the Bible does not mean that it was God's design. God's design from the garden was marriage was to be between one man and one woman. I do not believe here that the Old Testament is endorsing polygamous relationships. The quick statement that Elkanah had two wives hints to the fact that this is not good because it quickly draws our minds back to some other relationships previously in the Bible. Think about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. That did not turn out that great. Think about Jacob and Rachel and Leah. That did not turn out that great. Each of these relationships was fraught with difficulties and hardships, namely because there was more than one wife in the relationship. That simple reminder should prepare us for what we are about to see. And so Elkanah has two wives, one named Hannah, probably the first wife since she is listed first, and the second wife, Peninnah, who is most likely the wife taken after the fact that Hannah was not able to bear children. And that's the difference between these two women right there. That's what divides them. That's what brings problems. Peninnah had children. She was a have. But Hannah had no children. She was a have not. And in this society and in this culture, these two positions were worlds apart. Because it meant that one was blessed. One had received blessing from the Lord. One was fulfilled and had meaningful purpose to their life. But the other had nothing. No blessing from the Lord. No fulfillment. No satisfaction in life. Only shame and disgrace. And these two positions would come into direct conflict with each other as they went up to Shiloh. To worship. Shiloh is where the tabernacle of the Lord resided. The temple, the physical structure, had not been built yet in Jerusalem. And so before that, the Israelites worshiped at the tabernacle, a tent structure or complex which the Lord had instructed Moses to erect as they were wandering in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. This is where Elkanah's family would go yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And Elkanah would give two portions. He would give a portion to Peninnah and to her sons and daughters. They would take that portion and sacrifice. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. That is, not only would he give more to Hannah, but he would most likely even give the best parts to Hannah. And some people think that that's the heads of the sacrifice that he would give to Hannah. Why did Elkanah do this for Hannah? It says because he loved her. He loved her even though the Lord had closed or shut up her womb. His love was so great for her that it was expressed through giving her a double portion. And maybe this gives us a hint as to why Peninnah was so harsh in her provocation. 
Here is Hannah receiving the double portion. Here is Hannah who is being shown more love by the husband. So Peninnah begins to ruthlessly, grievously provoke her and irritate her. And what was the reason for Peninnah's provocation? The Lord had closed the womb of Hannah. And you could almost imagine Peninnah saying, Remember the Lord that we have come here to worship? Remember the Lord whom you're going to sacrifice that double portion to? Remember the Lord in whom you say you trust? Where has He gotten you? The Lord has closed your womb. The Lord has put you in this disgraceful condition. The Lord has shamed you. The Lord has withheld His blessing from you. The Lord has not shown you any favor, any grace, any mercy, any love. And Peninnah did not just do that once. She would do that year after year after year as they went up to worship. Another year, Peninnah provoked again. Another year, Peninnah provoked again. She was intent in driving the dagger deeper and deeper into Hannah's heart to cause more and more pain. She was dedicated to irritating Hannah, causing grief in Hannah's heart, bringing her soul down to the very depths of despair. Peninnah is not doing this by accident. No, it was a malicious, intentional, purposeful, continual provocation. You are a nothing, a zero. You have nothing to show for your life. You are worthless. You are empty. You are desolate. You are dead. And here we have The have, provoking, grieving, humiliating, the have not. You think bullying is something new? Forget about it. It's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Go go all the way back to Cain and Abel. Nothing is new because mankind has not really changed. It shows the fundamental problem of sin and pride is still there in the heart of men. I wonder, Christian, if this is what we experience in the world still today. Do we know such painful provocation? Could it be that the world would humiliate us, would cause us grief, would make us feel shame simply because of our lives as Christians? What are some of the things that we might hear from the world? Look at what your Lord has done for you. You are no better off with your Christianity. It's just a crutch, a weakness. If the Lord is supposed to have blessed you, then where is your blessing? You don't have anything. Look at all that I have, and I don't even believe in God. You're a nothing. You're a zero. You have nothing to show for your life. It's a mockery. The struggle going on between Peninnah and Hannah was a microcosm of what was going on in Israel between the haves and the have-nots, and ultimately it's a microcosm of what is going on in the world. We can't believe for a second that this provocation is over yet, but what can we do? We can hold on to the peace that God provides. That's what God precisely does here. God brings peace to Hannah's life that triumphs over every provocation. That triumphs over every cause of grief. That triumphs over everything that 
would irritate to the point of deep distress. There is a peace that God provides, and that peace would come in the form of a child. A child who would silence every provocation. What do you have to say now, Penina? What do you have to say now, world? Provoke all you want. Bring it on because God's peace will overcome whatever provocation you hurl against me. It may look like I have nothing. It may look like I am a zero. It may look like I'm the smallest and the weakest and the have-not, but I have everything because I have God's peace who is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Your provocations can never rob me of my peace. They are only meant to make me run more to my Savior who gives perfect peace. Peace with God. How amazing is that? How amazing is it that us, me, sinful, weak, ungodly human being, can have peace with God? Number two. God provides comfort to those inadequately consoled. God provides comfort to those inadequately consoled. Have you ever been trying to help someone, console someone? You're searching for the right words to say in that moment. The person is experiencing pain and difficulty and hardship. And, and as you're trying to say something, that person would say, it's not helping. My heart feels for Elkanah here, who is this husband who comes to Hannah and he tries to console her. Hannah is in a bad state. She's weeping. She's not eating. So like any concerned husband, Elkanah comes to Hannah to try to fix it. There's just one problem. Elkanah's consolation is inadequate. First, he recognizes her state. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? With such questions, we can see just how a a desperate condition Hannah is in. It's evident to Elkanah. You cannot hide it. And then it's with that last question that Elkanah attempts to resolve the problem. Am I not more to you than ten sons? There is a a certain amount of insensitivity here on Elkanah's part to what Hannah is going through. Insensitive to what is concerning Hannah. In fact, look at the question there. Am I not more to you than ten sons? In fact, his question turns all of the focus and all of the attention upon himself, does it not? What about me, Hannah? Think about me. Why don't you value me more than you do? How valuable am I to you? Elkanah then gives this comparison of ten sons, ten being the number of completion. He's saying, Hannah, aren't I worth more to you than if you had every child that you ever wanted? Think of what, what Elkanah does not do. Elkanah does not pray for his wife. Elkanah does not lead his wife to the Lord in her time of trouble. 
Elkanah unfortunately appears to make the situation more about himself and his own pride than understanding and really consoling Hannah in her time of need. Let's say this as well. If Elkanah had adequately consoled Hannah, then that would be the end of the story, wouldn't it? Nothing else to tell. Elkanah said some great words that took all the pain and hurt and resentment and grief and loss of appetite and sadness and vexation away. But that's not what happened. At the end of the day, Elkanah's words were inadequate to console Hannah. And what a reminder to us that it's not man's word that is going to soothe and bring relief and comfort and the kind of consolation that really helps. It's God's word that's going to do this. Only God can bring this kind of comfort and consolation. And too often, too often we believe that we will somehow find comfort, that there will be some consolation in this world. That is a fool's errand, my friend. Let me say that again, particularly to their kids here, or let's just say college age down, let's just say 25. This is, these are important words that you need to hear. Too often we believe that we will somehow find comfort, that there will be some consolation in this world. That is foolishness. If you are looking for that, then let me tell you with absolute certainty this morning, it will always be inadequate. You will never find comfort. It will never console. It will never get you where you need to be. Elkanah's words were just that words. There, were no, there was no power. There was no ability behind them. Elkanah was just as helpless as Hannah was. And there was nothing that he was able to do about it to get her out of her situation. There was no power that he possessed to fix the problem. Only God provides the ultimate comfort because he has the power. He has the ability to actually do something about our miserable state. If you are looking for any comfort in this life, there is only one place to find it. From God who has provided the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus who doesn't come merely to speak words of comfort. No, he is the very word of God who does something in order to bring you comfort. He gives up his own comfort. He gives up his own demands. He gives up his own self. He dies on the cross in order that you may know the greatest comfort that there is, the forgiveness of your sin. It is with this complete forgiveness that Christ has removed the wages of sin which you and I deserve, which is death, and instead has given us the gift of eternal life. It's why we sing this, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, Thou art. 
dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. If He is not the longing of your heart, there is only one solution. Salvation. Trusting in Jesus, repenting of your sin. Is He the joy of your longing heart? Number three this morning. God provides a stunning reversal to those wrongfully rebuked. God provides a stunning reversal to those wrongfully rebuked. There was a longing in Hannah's heart, a longing that her husband could not provide for her, a longing that no one could satisfy but God alone. So she is driven to prayer. Her husband did not pray for her. Her rival would not even attempt to say a kind word to her, much less pray for her. And so she goes to the tabernacle in faith. She goes before the Lord in faith. There is Eli, the high priest, sitting in this chair, sitting in this position of authority over the worship that's taking place in the tabernacle. He's there to ensure that people are worshiping in the right way. He has his place of prominence. It's before him that Hannah comes And in her deep distress, she's weeping bitterly, and she prays. There's only one whom whom Hannah can depend upon. There's only one whom Hannah can turn to. There's only one way out of this nightmare, and that's through the Lord. She believed in the Lord and believed that He could do something because He is the powerful Almighty Lord of hosts. We see that title for him twice in our chapter. The Lord of hosts. This is the first time that this title for the Lord is used in the Bible. The word hosts speaks of an innumerable army. The Lord leading his heavenly army into battle. How powerful is the Lord? How mighty is the Lord? This is the cosmic struggle bigger than Hannah where Hannah calls on the Lord of hosts. This warrior God, Hannah calls upon Him who will and who can overcome the curse of barrenness and childlessness that is upon her. If anyone is going to be able to do anything about this situation, it's only the Lord of hosts. And so Hannah appeals to his mercy to look on her affliction. She calls herself a servant or a slave to the Lord, and she makes a vow. Notice that she willingly, voluntarily makes a vow. Last week we were told the story of Manoah's wife, where Manoah and his wife would have a son, and that that son would be underneath a vow. 
That's what the angel of the Lord told them. But here, Hannah does it willingly. She willingly vows herself and her unborn, unconceived son as of yet. She vows that he would be a Nazarite. That is, that he would follow the vows set forth as a Nazarite from number six. That he would eat nothing from the vine. That he would touch no dead body. That he would not cut his hair. And that is, she devotes this hypothetical child to the Lord. Notice, she hasn't even conceived yet. But she says this, He will be yours. His life will be completely in your hands to do with Him whatever you see fit. Her longing is so great that she dedicates the child to the Lord even to the point where her role as a mother and her role as caring for this child as he grows up becomes diminished. That is how great her desire is before the Lord. You can hear the pleading in her crackling voice as she weeps in the bitterness of her soul before the Lord. With all faith, Hannah prays before the Lord. And as she's doing this, there's another scene that's taking place simultaneously. Here is Eli. He's observing this woman. He sees her lips moving, but there's no sound. There's no voice coming out of her mouth. He did not see that she was speaking to the Lord in her heart. And so Eli interpreted what was taking place before his eyes as this woman's drunk. There's no other explanation. And so he rebukes her, and rightly so if she is drunk, because it was something not to be tolerated in Israel. You were not to worship before the Lord as one who was drunk. In fact, the priests were told in Leviticus 10.9 that if they went into the tent drunk, they were to be put to death. It would have been an appropriate rebuke if Hannah had been drunk. But she wasn't. And she communicates this through her response. She is not drunk, but she is a woman troubled in spirit. She is so deeply distressed that it is in the very core of her being. She's not drunk, but what she has been doing is pouring out her soul before the Lord. She hadn't taken in alcoholic liquid, but in a sense the opposite. She was pouring out herself before the Lord that He might hear her prayer and that He might answer her prayer. There is a sense of irony in this interaction between Eli and Hannah. There's irony because what Eli had done in rebuking Hannah for her unbecoming worship is actually a rebuke that he should have given to his own sons. We had read about them at the beginning of this chapter. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. They likewise were priests in the temple But they were cheating people out of their sacrifices, out of their meat. They were committing sexually immoral acts. And later in chapter 2, Eli does end up rebuking his sons, but it's too late. They had been taking advantage of their position. They were taking advantage of their elevated position. They were taking that position that they had received from God and using it for their own sordid and sensual gain and pleasure. 
they wielded the prominence and the position they had been given and crushed the people below them. It doesn't end well for Eli's line. There has to be a new line that comes with a new prophet and a new judge. And notice there's another sense of irony here in what Hannah says she is not. You see that? She says, I am not a worthless woman. Literally, she says, I am not a daughter of Belial. Now, Belial would have been thought of during those days as the angel of wickedness or close parallel to Satan. So, Hannah makes this claim that she is not of the evil one, which we have to read in connection with 1 Samuel 2.12, which talks about Eli's sons. And what were Eli's sons? They were worthless Men, that is, they were sons of Belial. They were of the evil one. And you can see that through their actions of what they did, why the Lord brought their life to an end. If Hannah was a worthless woman, if she was a daughter of Belial, if she was of the evil one, a rebuke would be necessary and completely justified. But she had been speaking out of the anxiety and vexation of her heart. And how interesting it is that the line of the sons of Belial is cut off, but the line of Hannah actually flourishes and brings about a great reversal to the land. That's precisely what we see with Hannah. God completely reverses the curse of barrenness and childlessness that is upon Hannah. And it is this reversal that points to the fact that this is how God is going to bring salvation to the whole world. It is such a reversal that the birth of this child is the key to the hope of Israel's present situation. It is this one, Samuel, the one that Hannah had asked of from the Lord, who is a who in a sense bore the name of the Lord and would end up being the kingmaker of Israel, a kingmaker who sets in motion a course to help Israel and to help the whole world reach its destiny. It is an astounding and stunning reversal to bring this woman out of her misery and give her a child. And that continues to keep in motion what would lead to the complete reversal of the curse, not over just one person, but that curse that is over the entire world. This is what Hannah sings about in her song, this stunning reversal. Let's just read some verses here from Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. 
He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in the heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. This is exactly how God brings His grace into this world. This is exactly how God brings His salvation into this world. This is exactly how God rescues the world. What a dire situation the world is in. It needs to be saved, needs to be rescued. How? Someone strong, someone powerful, someone intelligent, someone capable. And what does God say? I know, I'll send a baby. A lot of good that's going to do, God. What can a baby do? Nothing. That's exactly how God works. It is how God worked to bring us salvation. And it's exactly how God has worked in us. It starts in weakness, in nothing, in humility. Isn't that what Paul said? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to do what? To bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your life, Christian, is a picture, a reflection of this reversal that God is doing in the world. It is a picture of the reversal that God has brought about through His own Son. A picture of a weak baby born, placed in a manger. A picture of a nobody carpenter from a nobody town. A picture of a rejected teacher. A picture of a beaten, bruised, spat upon king, a picture of a naked, crucified Savior, a picture of a blasphemed Son of God. 2 Corinthians 13.4, but he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You see what, you see what, what God has done in the world People who are in misery, the people who are weak, the people who are nobodies and nothings. Those are the people that God saves. Those are the people that God rescues. That's what he's done for us. And so you feel that question. How long? How long, O Lord? Until everything is made right again. It will be made right, my friends, because Jesus Christ has come. Listen to Psalm 30, 1 through 5. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up 
You have not let my foes rejoice over me, O Lord my God. I cried to you for help and you have healed me, O Lord. You have brought me up, my, my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. No more tears. Christ has come and is coming again. Let's pray. Lord, we feel those burdens that Hannah felt, deeply distressed, at times weeping, at times greatly vexed, at times calling out, how long, O Lord? Thank you for answering that question in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. When we ask that question, that there's someone there to provide the hope, to provide the courage that we need to go on, to provide the love, your love. What you tell us in your word is your steadfast love. A love that never leaves us. A love that never lets us go. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would do a work here among us this morning, Lord. If there's someone here who's never felt that question until this morning of how long Never, never felt that longing until this morning. That there's something wrong in this world. There's something wrong with my life. Something's broken. I've been trying to find comfort and consolation and things that don't satisfy. That today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. That today would be the day they'd say, I'm, I'm turning from that life of sin. I'm turning from that life of rebellion against God. I'm turning from that life where I used to be on that side of Penina who's provoking. Now I'm on the side. I want to be on the side of life. Side of joy. side of great comfort. Lord, work in our hearts, we ask. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.